morning. Welcome. Ah, look at that little talk back. Welcome to uh, Koinos Community Church. If you're new with us, my name is Tim Deal. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to have you with us this morning. That was a scene from the Wes Anderson film, The Darjeeling Limited. And in it, uh, we see, uh, you know, in this particular, it's one of the most poignant scenes in the film. We see um, Owen Wilson's character, who plays Francis. It's three brothers. Owen Wilson plays the oldest, Francis. And uh, you see them in the airport bathroom getting ready to go home after a, a, a spiritual pilgrimage they've taken in India following their father's death. And on this pilgrimage, they've kind of been searching for, for meaning, for connection, trying to figure out what their lives are all about. And you see this scene where, where Francis unwraps these bandages, and, and you learn in the film that, you know, in the beginning he talks about how he was in this motorcycle accident. Later we find out that he intentionally drove his motorcycle into the side of a hill. And here in this scene, he, he's unwrapping these bandages that he's been wearing all film, and he takes a good, strong look in the mirror and says, looks like I've got some more healing to do. And that moment is, is kind of very instructive of the film, this, this moment of self-recognition, of, of self-examination, of recognizing what needs to happen for him in order to move forward. We're beginning a new series this week that's going to go for a couple of weeks that we're calling Encounter. We're looking at uh, the fourth uh, biography of Jesus that we find in the New Testament, the Gospel of John. And in John, one of the things I love about this, this particular telling of, of Jesus' story is how many encounters he has with individuals. The ways that we, we kind of get insider looks into these conversations, these intimate encounters that Jesus has with individuals throughout John's Gospel. And so what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks is we're going to look at some of these encounters, at, at how these people meet Jesus and in what happens to them in that encounter, and think about how that relates to us. For, for those of us who are, are looking to follow Christ, we don't believe that, you know, the, the kind of core of the Christian faith is not simply that we have these particular dogmas or, or doctrines or or practices, though all of that is part of it, but it's around a person that, that we believe that what we're doing is actually encountering a, a person, God who, who came and walked among us, who still wants to work in us as we seek him. And so as we look at these stories, we want to learn what does it look like for us as we encounter Jesus? What can we learn from these accounts? Now, as, as I was thinking about this series, this series has kind of been set up for a little while now. Obviously, um, many of us over the past week had our, well, two weeks, um, had our worlds a little bit interrupted with the events in Orlando. Um, you know, w- once again, a mass shooting, innocent lives lost, and as, as I'm thinking about this, this sermon series, you know, I, I kind of had to take a step back and go, do I need to change things? Like, should we, should we talk about this a little bit more kind of explicitly? Am I, do I stick with the program? Do, do we take a kind of a different direction? 
And as I thought about what these different encounters looked like, there was one particular one that I was drawn to as I thought about this situation in Orlando. Now, there's lots of really important conversations that need to happen when things like this occur. Lots of kind of big picture questions about how we deal with policies and laws and how we deal with extremism, how we deal with hate. There are many, many important conversations to be had, and we can't have all of them, definitely not this morning, um, but particularly not in venues like this. But I think there's one particular conversation that we really need to kind of dig into that we don't often hear a lot about in, in public conversations when things like this happen. As I was reading this week, I came across some, some writings about a man named Alexander Soltsin, wait, Soltsin Itsin. I'm sure I butchered that really bad. Um, I'll call him by his first name. Alexander uh, was born in Russia in 1918. And he was, by all rights, kind of a good Russian uh, nationalist, loved the, the Communist Party, loved the communist ideals, uh, became an officer in the Red Army during World War II, led well. But he wasn't a fan of Stalin. He wasn't a fan of Stalin's draconian leadership style. And he began writing letters to a friend who was also fighting for the the Red Army but was stationed in the Ukraine. And one of those letters got intercepted. In it, he had critiqued Stalin. And so even though he was an officer in the Red Army, was serving his country faithfully, he was imprisoned, uh, sent to a Russian gulag, and spent the next 11 years between forced labor camps and exile. During that time, Alexander had lots of opportunity to observe the worst of humanity, to observe uh, evil in the hearts of other people. Um, Soldiers who guarded him, the, the structures of the Communist Party and their leadership, and he had lots of critique for them. But what's interesting is later in his writing, uh, Alexander became a very famous writer, actually won the Pulitzer Prize for Literature in 1970. And in one particular work, the Gulag Archipelago is the name of it, he reflects on his experience in the Russian Gulag. And he writes about evil. And I want to read to you what's now kind of a famous quote. You, you may have heard of it. He says, If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? I found it fascinating that this person who had every right to critique to rail against the kind of external forces of the Communist Party, the the draconian leadership that that Stalin lived out. And he, he did have critique for those things. He spoke about them. But somewhere along the line realized that 
the bottom issue was not just the evil out there, but it was the evil in here. So we're going to look this morning at uh, a passage out of John. Where when we look at these stories over the next couple of weeks, we're not necessarily going to go sequentially. We're going to kind of hop around um, looking at some of these stories from John's gospel. Uh, this morning, we're going to read from John chapter 8. Uh, again, this is a fairly famous interaction. So even if you're someone who's not particularly familiar with Scripture, you, you may have heard this alluded to or even read. Um, but it's John chapter 8. Uh, you'll see the scripture up on the, the uh, PowerPoints. So you can follow along. We read, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early in the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Now, a lot of, uh, if you have a Bible and you look at it, most Bibles will have some kind of uh, asterisk or, or footnote here that indicate that this, the earliest manuscripts don't actually have this portion of Scripture in this particular place. Scholars uh, have, have kind of looked at this for a long time, and, and there's not a whole lot of debate as to whether or not this event actually happened. There's just more of a, a debate about where it fits in the narrative. So if you're reading along and you kind of see that, don't get freaked out. It's not that they're saying, well, we don't know that this thing actually happened. They're just saying, we're not sure exactly that this is where it falls in the story, um, but we're pretty sure this actually happened. So you see here, you know, Jesus is teaching and a group of religious people come to kind of call him on the carpet publicly about a matter of the law. They've caught this woman in the act of adultery. Now, now we don't know exactly what that means. We don't know if that means they, you know, kind of caught these two in bed together or if there's something else going on. Um, We don't know, but somehow they know. And they say that Moses' law commands that you stone people caught in adultery. And they're actually right. So in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 22, 22, which is a part of the, the Old Testament scriptures, the, the law, we read that if a man is discovered committing adultery, both he and the woman must die. So they're right that Moses commands that they stone people caught in adultery. Interesting that you may notice there's somebody missing. Right? Like, they've drug out this woman. But if you pay attention to the scripture at all, you'll notice that, and you probably get this if you know what adultery is, it typically takes two people to commit the act of adultery. I suppose we could have, but no, seriously, it does. Um, And so, 
there's somebody missing, right? Like, where's the dude? Now, there's been lots of speculation over the years about what might be going on here. Um, One interesting theory is that maybe the dude is standing there holding a rock. I don't know, it's just speculation. Um, we, We have no idea. But we do know that he's not there. I mean, maybe it was just easier for these men to sympathize with the man. I mean, after all, you know, when, when women like that do things like she does, we get what it's like to be a man, to be tempted, right? I mean, maybe she had her hair down in public. Maybe she, she spoke to him on the street. Both of those things would have been akin to a woman walking down one of our streets practically naked. I mean, it just wouldn't have have been okay. And maybe, much like we experience today, um, when those things happen to women, it's easy for the men to kind of say, well, but she was doing this. We don't know. We can speculate... We can speculate, we can conjecture. All we know is the man was not there. And so it does make you wonder how concerned they were with keeping the law and how concerned they were with something else. As John mentions, they were, they were trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to catch him. And so Jesus' handling of this is remarkable. Right? Like he could have easily made them look foolish by pointing out to everyone that they conveniently chose to ignore the letter of the law. Right? Like he could have just whipped out Deuteronomy 22.22, which he probably had memorized, and been like, come on, people, get it right. This is a mistrial. He could have taken the opportunity to lecture this woman on adultery and promiscuity. But he doesn't do either. He says, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Now there's a lot of ways this passage could kind of, there's a lot of places we could go with this. Um, One of the most popular and really helpful ways to look at this passage is to see this as an invitation towards forgiveness and grace of letting go of judgment and loving those who have sinned. Those are all really helpful, right, and good interpretations. But I think, particularly thinking about some of the events of Orlando, other events where we look out and we say, that is evil. I think there's a a related angle to consider this morning. And that's that Jesus' response to all the parties involved was to do some self-reflection was to stop and wonder, maybe the primary problem here isn't just something that is external to you. Maybe the primary problem here is something that exists in you. Maybe the invitation, as much as there's lots of evil out there, is to take a long, hard look at the evil in here. One of the things we find as we encounter Jesus in the New Testament is that he teaches us to be really gracious with other people's sin 
and ruthless with our own. And that's not to say that there's never a time to call evil, evil. And I'm not for a moment suggesting that we hesitate in recognizing heinous acts for what they are. But I am suggesting that we might do well in times like this of reflecting on where the seeds of those same kinds of evils exist in our hearts. What it might look like for us to be ruthless with our own sin. Jesus uh, tells another kind of a parable in one of the other biographies of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. He says this. Again, it's a fairly familiar one. You, You may have read it or heard it. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. I think about it. Have you ever gotten, have you ever gotten new glasses? I have. Um, and I remember one time particularly when my prescriptions got adjusted pretty significantly. And, uh, you know, I, I tried the new glasses on, and, and they seemed a little like, wow, these are, these are stronger. I need to get used to them. And after I wore them for about 10 minutes, I, I remember I was at, like, the, the vision care in the mall or something, I had kind of like I had this sense of disorientation about me, where as I'm walking around, things started to feel a little like I'd been drinking a lot. Like I mean, things are are waving and moving, and it's it's kind of like hard to get my my bearings. And I couldn't like I couldn't drive. I, I couldn't I couldn't do anything that took any kind of like uh, attention to detail. My mind was just mush because I was adjusting to these prescriptions that made all the world feel a little wavy. Now, I can only imagine what would have happened had in that moment you come to me and said, I got a little something in my eye. Can you, can you help me? I would have gouged your eye out, right? Because the problem when you can't see clearly, but your intent on helping someone else see clearly, is that not only does it cause lots of awkwardness and confusion because you can't quite find the thing you're looking to dig out, but you're probably going to do some significant damage to the other person. If you're not able to see clearly and yet you try to clean out somebody else's eye, you're more likely to blind them than to help them. And I think this is what Jesus is calling out here in this moment for these religious people. It's not that adultery is not a big problem. It is. It's not that he's not concerned that adultery be dealt with. But it's that he recognizes to begin to adequately address that external problem at all, they need to first do the hard work of addressing the internal problem. And this is where I think this needs to be at least part of the conversation. Again, this isn't the whole conversation by a long shot. I'm not saying everything else needs to get tabled and we only talk about our own stuff. But I think as we talk about how to deal with tragedies and heinous events like this nightclub shooting, we have to be willing to take a long, hard look at our hearts and ask questions, not just 
about why that kind of hate exists out there in somebody else's life. But where that kind of hate exists in my own heart. Where does that kind of fear exist in me? Where am I failing to love my neighbor as myself? I was recently having a conversation with a friend and we were talking about a statement made by a a public figure. And my friend was clearly incensed by this statement and his kind of knee-jerk response was, man, someone just needs to shoot that guy. Now, this is a private conversation and if you were to corner my friend, he would absolutely kind of walk that back and say, I didn't really mean that. And if you were to corner my friend, he would probably say, I really don't want that person dead. But you see, you, you see kind of the sneakiness of that kind of evil, of, again, what the Bible would call sin in our hearts. How before you know it, this, this fear, this harboring hatred suddenly seeps out in ways that kind of surprise you. We have to do the work of being real and honest about the evil in our hearts if we're ever going to adequately be able to address the evil that exists at a meta level out there. Because after all, in this event, uh, let, let's go back to the, the John 8 kind of incident with the, the, the rulers of the law. What's really going on here? So for one, they're, they're trying to trap Jesus, right? Jesus is a, a popular, rising religious figure, and they don't know how to handle it. And so they're starting to leverage anything at their disposal to keep this whole thing under control. If that means manipulating the law, they'll do it. If that means using violence against someone, they'll they'll do it. Because this is all getting out of control. And if if it starts to grow, we don't know where all of that's going to go. We don't know what might happen if these people actually start listening to this guy, Jesus, and doing what he says. And so we have to keep it under control. And oftentimes... It's those, those seeds of fear, those desires to keep things under control, of being, feeling out of control that lead to these heinous acts. And most of us, the vast majority of us, would say, I can't even fathom being in that place. But we have to be honest about the seeds of those things that we, we, nourish, we, we nourish, we nurture in our own hearts. Fear, bitterness, anger, hatred. And if we deal with all the externals and don't deal with the evil within ourselves, we're just going to discover that what we most fear may actually be present within us. Um, so sometimes when I scroll through Facebook and people post those, like, uh, the, the viral kinds of posts, um, you know, most of the time they're, they're about kittens or, um, like, some kind of other thing that just doesn't matter. 
Um, but I, I, was, I was doing this a couple of days ago, and I found something that was actually kind of compelling. Somebody had posted something on their, their wall, and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I want to read more about that. So I did. And you may have seen this, again, if you are like me and you scroll through Facebook. Um, it was about a woman named Keisha Thomas, who a number of years ago, I think about 20 years ago, she was 18 years old in her hometown of Ann Arbor, Michigan. And there was a white supremacist organization that was having a rally. And hundreds of protesters turned out to, to protest this event. And somewhere along the line, you know, there's, there's lots of police there trying to keep people kind of calm and keep things under control. Somewhere along the line, uh, a man with a, uh, a Confederate flag on his T-shirt and a, uh, an SS tattoo, I believe, on his arm ended up on the side of the protesters. It's unclear exactly whether or not he was with the white supremacist group, um, but the, the crowd saw what he was wearing and immediately assumed that that's what he was doing. And so they started kind of shouting and heckling him, and then eventually you know, he recognized he was in danger and began to, to move quickly, began to run. The crowd followed suit, ran after him. He, he fell, and someone yells, kill the Nazi. And people begin to like kick him and, and hit him with the, the, the posts from the placards that they're holding that are protesting violence. And in the midst of all of that, an 18-year-old high schooler named Keisha Thomas throws herself on top of him to protect him. Thankfully, because Keisha was there, the photographer later kind of remarked what was most striking about this is that she risked her life for this person who he would imagine probably wouldn't have done the same thing. But what's most striking about this whole kind of incident is, is the irony, right? I mean, here are, is a whole group of people who come out to protest hate and violence and anger and exclusion. And suddenly, when they find themselves in a position of power, all of that that they claim to be against rises up in them to the point that they try to bring harm to this person. And that's the problem that arises when we so quickly look to deal with the evil out there without adequately addressing the evil in here. Before we know it, we can become what we claim to be against. We can begin to exhibit what we say is evil in our own lives. And it's pretty common to associate this with religious people. And we have a really bad track record at being people who are good, at being ruthless at the sin we see in others, and really gracious about the sin that exists within us. But it's just as common with secular people. In fact, uh, Alexander, whose last name I continue to struggle to pronounce, um, was ostracized, imprisoned by a blatantly secular, anti-religious government that saw his writings and his questioning as threatening to the power structures. This isn't a religious or a secular thing. This is a human thing. This is a, a thing that all of us are inclined to do if we don't adequately deal 
with the evil that's in us. But when we encounter Christ, he calls us to recognize first, but not only, but first, the evil in our own lives and accept our need to have our own evil dealt with. And it's only as we allow that evil to be dealt with that we're able to see rightly. Only as we remove that log from our own eye that we're able to join him in dealing with the evil out there in a way that actually moves us forward, individually and collectively. We've got to start with the evil in us. We've got to be ruthless with our own sin, even as we're gracious with others. Now, when I say that, I don't mean we need to be guilt-ridden. I actually think it's the opposite. The core belief of the Christian faith is that Christ took care of our guilt and sin, and so we don't need to walk around feeling guilt and shame. But we do need to recognize that we all have those tendencies within us. We need to be honest about what's really there in our lives and ruthless about rooting it out, dealing with it. Only as we begin to find healing and wholeness, only as we, like Owen Wilson's character, take off the bandages and look honestly at our own damage and what healing needs to happen, only then can we actually be a part of the healing that God wants to bring in others' lives. So, how can we do this? I think, I think the theme of, of honesty is central here. We need to be people who are honest in three different ways. I think we need to be honest with God, honest with ourselves, and honest with others. So there, there, scriptures talk a lot about this. I just want to throw out kind of a brief one for each one. But we, we need to be honest with God. There's a scripture in one of the letters in the New Testament, 1 John 1.9, where John writes, If we confess our sins to him, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Again, this this isn't a call to be guilty or to beat ourselves up because we're such horrible people. It's a recognition that we are not all that we want and ought to be and that God's desire is to heal us and to grow us and to transform us. But if we're going to do that, we have to be honest about who we really are. And so there's this honesty in coming to God. And in the context of that, there's an honesty with ourselves. There's looking square in the mirror and being straight up about who we are and who we aren't. What those kind of feelings of fear and hate, exclusion, the anger, the the greed, the lust, all of the stuff that kind of we try to push down, we've got to be honest with that about that with God and with ourselves. Again, there's uh, Paul in his letter to uh, the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians, says, examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. There's this call in the scriptures to regularly be examining yourself, examining your own heart, being aware of what's going on within you. There's a lot of different ways to do this. There There are tools that can be used. I mean, one of the things that's clear is that This is not going to happen well if every spare moment we we are distracting ourselves with something, right? So we've talked about this many times. You're probably familiar. There's a lot of, there's growing research on how difficult it is to be self-aware, self-reflective people 
when every spare second we're, we're kind of checking, you know, Facebook or we're, uh, we're online surfing something, you know, waiting in long lines has become an opportunity to check my email or to, to send out some random text. There's never time for self-reflection, for, for listening, for thinking. So we need space like that in our lives if we're going to do a good job of examining our hearts, of rooting out the own evil, or, or our own evil. Um, some other things, uh, one helpful tool that has been suggested to me is the idea of finding a, a portion of, of Scripture, of Jesus' teachings, and praying through that, reflecting on that, and allowing that to be something that challenges us. So a good, uh, a good chunk that you could use would be what's in Matthew 5 through 7, what is kind of traditionally called the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, well, the Beatitudes is kind of the beginning of that, but that whole thing is the Sermon on the Mount. It's this, this picture that Jesus gives of life the way we were intended to live it, life with him in the world. And there's lots of places, if you ever read Matthew 5 through 7, where you'll get there and you're like, he can't be serious. No actual person can do that. And that's intentional. And it's in those moments that we're invited to sit in the tension and ask God to help us do the hard work of examining our hearts. And and why is it so hard for me to actually think Jesus is serious when he says that? So maybe it's an exercise like that. Maybe it's praying through Matthew five, six, and seven, spending some time reading that, praying about it, and feeling the tension. Uh, another friend suggested the, the Ignatian practice of the daily examine. And basically all that is is it's this kind of ancient tool of reflection on your day where once or twice a day, usually like lunch or evenings before bed, you would sit and kind of reflect on your day and ask, notice, where you felt like God was present and where you felt distant from God. And use that as a tool to kind of see kind of where those moments of, yeah, where, where you might have been living out of some of the, the gross stuff, the sin in your heart, where that was true, and maybe where you were choosing making better choices. Patterns of reflection like that can help us pay attention to where those moments of evil spring up. Why did I feel so angry right there? Why was I so anxious in that moment? We need those times of reflection. So being honest with God, being honest with ourselves, and finally being honest with other people. Um, Again, there's a passage in uh, the book of James towards the end of the New Testament where James tells us, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. You know, we we live in a a very individualistic society where we want to keep everything kind of close to the chest that doesn't speak the most positive about us, particularly in, in a world where most of our, our facade exists kind of on the internet, right, in Facebook and social media. We always put our best foot out there. We want to look like we are all put together. And so the idea that I have this kind of gross stuff that I'm messing with internally, that rarely comes up in any meaningful way. But that's really tragic. We all need spaces. We all need relationships. Not, not like that you're projecting it to hundreds of people, but you, we all need one or two people who we feel safe with saying, I'm really struggling with this one particular thing. I really struggle feeling anger or hatred or fear towards this particular group of people, towards this one individual who I work with. Toward, you know, fill in the blank. 
we need those spaces. And we need people in our lives who can come alongside of us and call out that stuff for what it is, but walk with us and pray for us and help us move forward. Community is key and it's a gift. If you don't have those relationships and you're not quite sure where to find them, talk to me. I'd love to help you think about what it might look like to invite one or two people into your life who could do that. These are critical relationships that all of us need and should have, but most of us, the vast majority of us, never experience. We need to be honest with others. And as we develop a lifestyle of honesty with God, with ourselves, and with others, in that context, we will be better equipped to adequately address the evils that we face in the world, to deal with the actual evil that is out there. Again, this is not in any way underselling how evil those things are, but it's rightly understanding that unless we deal with our own stuff, we're not going to be able to deal with what we face out there. Not well, anyway. Not in any way that makes a long-term difference. Father, we are we're grateful that in Jesus you said something about evil in the world and in us. And so as we reflect on Jesus' death, would you help us to reflect on our own hearts, our own lives, on the evil within us, and on the ways we need to be honest about that with you, with ourselves, and with others. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you that you don't wait until we're fixed up to invite us into the opportunity to bring healing and wholeness into the world. But we also thank you that you are concerned about healing and wholeness in our own lives. And so you invite us, invite us into being honest with you, with ourselves, and with others. Help us to do that now as we take communion together, we pray in Jesus' name.